Add Passion and Stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Portland, Maine for the first time, and we've got Ilma Lopez with us, the uh, pastry chef and owner of two great restaurants, Piccolo and Cheval. And Ilma, I was at Piccolo last night. It was so good. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I had, and you're going to tell us how you made it or how your team made it because it was really it was an extraordinary dinner, and the test is always for my 13-year-old Nate because he, you know, has a lower tolerance for great food than my wife Rosemary and I, and he loved it as well. He had the uh, the New York strip steak, and it was just it was beautiful. That's just fantastic. Like pink it's, and tender, and it was great. It's so tender. We're super lucky to work with great farmers. So pretty much, literally, we just get the meat and just portion and cook it. We don't do anything to it. Black pepper, sea salt, done. And you get it from close by. So we do. We use different things. We are using a Highland uh, cow that we got from Freeport. This farmer, she is, she just raised the Highland cows just for us. So we actually got ours in about like two weeks ago. So they were hanging, they were drying, and they're fantastic. This one is at twenty three months. Um, yeah, twenty three months, and her name was Ruby. Ruby, it was delicious. And we're also here with Rick Russo, who I've known a long, long time. Ilma, I've just met, although I tasted her food yesterday. Rick, I, I, I want to know what you had last night. I, you know what I had? I had the cod, and it was fantastic. Uh, you're still not eating noodles. Yeah, no, I'm still not no. eating. Noodles. My, my wife, my wife had the fettuccine, <laughs> okay, uh, which I just took a glance at. Uh, and, and, and she yeah. tried to tempt me with there was some beef in it, right? Some, yeah, uh, that's the but, cow. <laughs> uh, I've never had a noodle in my life. I can't eat a noodle. It's a weird thing. Let's let's move on. Oh, and let's and and, and it's not really. It's I not, should have known this. And it's, and it's not the, and it's not the only thing that he won't eat. I think over the course of the next 15 minutes, we should we could, we should make a pretty comprehensive list here. See, I count, I count on my friends forgetting these things, which most of them do, and then I have to have the conversation again. But Rick, Rick obviously remembers that I not only have never had a noodle, I've never had rice of any kind. There's a whole, there's a, Rick's right, there's a whole slew of things. But anyhow, Rick, we obviously go back way too long. I think more than 20 years, maybe 25 years, almost so, since yeah. the very start yeah. of Share Our Strength. Yep. Because um, I remember when we first reached out to um to writers uh, to help raise money for our anti-hunger work. We were doing a book called Louder Than Words, and we asked a number of really great writers, um, Rick Russo, Ann Tyler, Joyce Carol Oates, Ethan Kane, and people like that, to donate an original short story. And Rick donated one, which ended up in our book, and it was, and he's been involved with Share Our Strength ever since. And um, you, you've written many books since then. You've won the Pulitzer Prize since then, which I take part of the credit for, like, you know, <laughs> I, I know how to identify Pulitzer Prize winners and bring them into the organization. But the most recent is called The Destiny Thief, which my wife and I have both read recently. And uh, I'm going to, I think Rick brought me a copy, and I'm going to give you my copy, Ilma, so that you can read it. Uh, and then we'll all have one. But it's really, uh, it's it's a it's a great book and it's um it's nonfiction pieces from you which is would surprise most people because you're mostly novels. Yeah, yeah, and it's it was um you know one what happened was that you know I've been I've been giving talks um, on the road for about the last twenty years um, and um, sometimes uh, if you're not touring with a book people would like you to just you know they don't want you to read from the book they want you to give a talk of some sort and so. You know, I've I have um, I had I realized nine or ten of them, and I stacked them on the on my desk one day, and I thought, hmm, that's about the size of a book when you when you <laughs> when you when you when you put them one on top of another like that, and I thought we, we might be able to fob this off on an unsuspecting public. Um, so, but what I did, I had to. But then, since some of them were were fairly old, um, I did have to go back and re reread all of those and. And decide if I still agreed with what I what I had been saying, you know, 20 years ago in some cases. In one case, I discovered I didn't, and mm -hmm. I had to go revise the entire thing. And which which essay is that? It's it's a it's an essay uh, about omniscient point of view. Okay. Um, and it's called "What Frogs Think," and it, it's 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 about the fact that the the default mode for telling stories back in the 19th century was a kind of dear reader like omniscient point of view, where you 
where you talked about your characters and the narrator, the omniscient narrator had a kind of voice and took the reader by the hand. Um, and that's gone completely out of fashion. Now, nobody, almost nobody tells stories like that anymore. And I still think it's a wonderful form. And I do, and a few, a few people do, but it, but it has fallen out of favor. Well, the title story, The Destiny Thief, gives us kind of your kind of coming up as a, as a writer. Um, and Ilma, since you haven't written the, the story of, of yours yet, we're going to have you talk through your beginnings because you were born in Venezuela. You came to the U.S. You studied under some of the best chefs uh, in the country, Daniel Balud and Jean George von Gerichten, and on and on and on. Incredible. But you started, I think you were pre-med originally, I'd read, or you were studying to be a doctor. And one of the reasons I love having you two on together is, uh, and we'll come back to this, Rick's got a piece in The Destiny Thief. It's his uh, commencement speech to Colby College in 2004. And one of the things he talks about is, I think very compellingly, is following your passion. One of your rules for for life is how you go like straight to what you love to do. And Rick says, you know, figure out what you would do for free and then find a way for somebody to pay you for it. Um, But so, but how did, how did you end up being the chef that you are? Honestly, I, I have a great family. I have a great support system. I think that's what keeps me going. And uh, they make me go down to earth every single day, so which is pretty cool. But yeah, I'm from born and raised in Venezuela. Moved to the States when I was 21. And uh, before that, I went to, um, I live over like six months in Canada, uh, learning English. Then went back to Venezuela. All my family has gone to the same medical school. All of them are doctors, except my uncle. So for me, it was just like, that's what you do. Like, you go to school and you go to medical school because that's what everyone does. And it's really hard to get into school. And I realized by my second year, I hated biochemistry. Couldn't do it. Hated it with all passion. But I always liked cooking. But back home, as a female, you're not a cook. You're a wife. You're a housemate. Like, I mean, I'm a South American kid and I'm trying to be a pastry chef with these French people. And they look at me like, no, dude, like, your job is home. Like, just go and stay home. And I remember, like, my mom was like, okay, if you have really good grades in medical school this year, then you're able to go to cooking school. I was like, okay, fine. She made me go to school, to medical school and get good degrees. And I still, at night, I will work in this French restaurant back in Venezuela. So she will pick me up. I was like 19. So she will pick me up at midnight and then at 7 in the morning do it all over again every day. And then she realized after kind of like six months that she's like oh my god this is actually what you want to do and I ended up moving to the states doing my pastry degree in Washington and then I moved to New York and I got a job with Daniel Balud after that I moved to Spain and worked at a bully and after that I moved back to New York and working under these amazing other chefs in the city then uh, I took a cruise for six months all over Asia and was a pastry chef in this cruise line Silver Seas, which is like the attention to details one-on-one. So it's 400 people working, but it's not more than 400 passengers. So literally it's one-to-one, the relation, which is pretty neat. And I got to work with, in a different countries, my job was making sure that I did all the buying for the pastry department and also make the menus and desserts. That was really hard, but it was I learned a ton because I got to work with people in different ingredients that I usually never have even seen before. And so did you suspect that you had this, obviously given who you've worked for and what you've accomplished, you had some innate ability, almost natural talent. I know you worked hard too, but it seems like, was there a spark at which you said, I I know I've got something here in terms of being a pastry chef? Honestly, I consider myself extremely lucky. I'd be in the right place. Like, for example, in Spain, people have spent five years applying for this job at a bully. And it just happened that I work under this amazing chef in Madrid that he thought I had more talent than working for him. He's like, no, you have to work for my friend. Like, you're way too good to work for me. And he sent me over to his friends. It just happened that it's Ferradria and his friend, which is amazing. Thank God it was his friend. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> So some other folks recognize the talent almost even before you fully appreciated yeah, I, what you had. And even at the restaurant, the joke that they have at Piccolo and Chaval is they come eat last minute Lopez. Because I said I just show up to the restaurant in half an hour, I have a brand new menu, and I do it just like effortlessly, which they make fun of me, but I'm pretty sure they think that it's BS. But hey, yeah. <laughs> no, well, um, luck, luck does have a large part 
to do with success, doesn't it? Successful people don't like to actually talk about how lucky, how, how important luck is. Um, I had um, uh, at one point my, my uh, third novel, fourth novel, uh, third novel um, uh, was, was made into a movie. And uh, as a result of that, I got to um, I got to work with the director a lot. This is nobody's fool. This is nobody's fool. Yeah, yeah. And and um, and and I mean, talk about luck. Um, Number one, it was lucky to have it optioned. Number two, it was much luckier to have it made. And then it was then I got lucky even in the weather because it started to snow like, you know, and, and they and they got behind schedule at the shoot. And the director normally would would do his own revisions on the set. They would they would they would rehearse, and then they would do the shoot, and they and and they'd rehearse the next day, and he would do his own revisions. But he got so far behind um, that he that he couldn't he couldn't do any of his own revisions. And so they asked me to come and 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 do um, and do revisions, and it, and that that little bit of luck was was what opened the door to to me working in film at other times. Just just because. That that um, that confluence of, of of good fortune you can't you can't scale that you can't plan for it <laughs> you just you just say thank you and it happens. And you, for a first movie, this was not like some small movie. This was Paul Newman yep. starring, Robert Benton directing, right. Right. and like you know, amazing. Yep. You've got a line in the Destiny Thief here where you're talking about. Um, in the book, I, I forget which essay it is, but you're talking about, um, you know, people say, oh, you know, he pulled him up from his bootstraps. You say, I can't even, I don't even know where my bootstraps right. are. And you're talking about, you know, <laughs> yeah. some of the, some of the uh, uh, instances in which luck or fortune had, you know, played a role. Well, I, you know, I always say, uh, and it, it's, it's a little, it sounds a little bit glib, but it's true. Um, I, I owe, if, if I look at the, very, the, the blessings of my life right now, um, and they are, um, you know, work that I love, um, a woman that I've been married to for over 45 years, uh, the, the daughters that we've had, and now, and now grandchildren. And um, being able to, uh, not only to write, but to support myself as a writer, which not every writer can do. Um, and, and if you think all the myriad blessings in my life can all be traced back to stupidity in, in, <laughs> in, some, in some way or other, my, my mother... Uh, was desperate to get out of the small town that that we lived in, and she concocted over a period of years. I mean, she played a really, really long game, <laughs> you know. And so back when when I I was like a sophomore, she she started talking to me about wouldn't it be nice if we lived in the Southwest somewhere? When, and so Arizona Highways magazine started turning up on the coffee table, and she kind of led me a morsel at a time to want to get out of the, of the town that we lived in to go off to college in some place in the Southwest. She didn't tell me she planned to come along. Um, and, and, we, and we made it across country. I had only had my driver's license for just a very few months, and we were towing a U-Haul with all of, with all of our worldly goods in it um, across the entire United States. She did not drive. It was just the most ridiculous thing that two otherwise intelligent people would have thought to do. And... I, you know, I just, and when we got there, we had to, I had, number one, I had to teach her to drive because she was going to need the car. It was, it wasn't my car anymore. And we had to find her a job. Um, and, uh, you know, it, and it all had to be done in like two weeks. I was 18. Um, so, and so and I look back on that now, and it was just, I've never done anything in my life as stupid, I think, since. And yet, what did I get out of it? You know, I became a man there. I became, um, 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 I became a husband there. I became a father there. All of these blessings, you know, it's pure serendipity. Yep. I, I, well, I remember when my, uh, it's not the, quite the same as what flows from being stupid, but my older son was at school at a time when everybody in his class was being put on attention deficit disorder drugs. That was the thing. This was 20 years ago. And I remember talking to the principal who was advocating for it, and, and I said, you know, I said, I've had a fair number of good ideas in my life. I've never had one of them when I was paying attention. Yeah. But I think paying attention <laughs> is overrated. So, yeah, right. But it is, you know, and then you, you, you want the kind of the twists and turns and where they're going to take you because that's, that's what you learn from. Which is why when you, go off to, when you go off to medical school, I used to, tell, used to tell my students, if you don't change your, if you, when you go off to school, if you don't change your major at least once, you have to wonder if your mind is closed. Right, because there are such 
wonderful things out there that, yeah. that, and, that I, and, you, I, and you don't know about them yet. And I love in The Destiny Thief where you say, you know, if your child comes back from college as, as similar to you as when he or she left, something went wrong, something, right? Yeah, I mean, something's college wrong. is supposed <laughs> yeah. to change you. So, and, yeah. and it yeah. is. Um, I, uh, one of the things I'm going to have to do, Ilma, is I'm going to have to come up with a list from the Add Passion and Stir episodes of chefs who started out pre-med. You wouldn't believe what a large percentage of them. I don't know why it's pre-med, but um, because I mean, it's most... focus, it's focus is like yeah. the schedule. You already know, you already know that you're going to be working in every single holiday. The difference, like instead of being in the ER waiting for someone that did something yeah. dumb, yeah. you're actually in the kitchen cooking for all those families. But it's, I think it's like the schedule. You already know that you don't have a life, so might as well just choose something else along the same way. And for me, it's because I learned how to cook. My mom is a single mom, so my brother and I grew up like you know doing grocery shopping ourselves cooking, doing everything for the three of us. And my grandma actually taught me how to do pretty much everything. Well, Rick, in in your story, The Destiny Thief, the whole book you could, in a way, say is kind of like a writer's guide to becoming a writer, but it's really about a human being's guide to finding and being themselves really more than that. Um, And it just, it, I, I could para, I could kind of paraphrase what Destiny Thief is about, but you're here, so why would I? <laughs> you should. Uh, I mean, just tell that story a little bit because I think it's so interesting uh, how you found your real voice. Well, and, and um, the, the the title essay uh, of the Destiny Thief um, r- really came to be as a result of. Um, uh, a couple of things that had happened uh, in my life um, after um, one one before I became a writer and one after what happened what happened was that that when I took my very first class in in writing i was I was a phd student and and when I finished my dissertation, I was set to become a college professor for the for the rest of my life but but I, I got it suddenly occurred to me that all the people who were having fun in the English department were all in creative writing. And so I thought, well, why not? Why not try something like that? But they put me, uh, even as a graduate student, they put me in an undergraduate class, a sophomore level undergraduate class, where there was this this the most talented writer in it. And I was pushing thirty then, but the most talented writer in it was probably twenty, uh, and he was writing this wonderful rock and roll novel, and I was so jealous of him. Um, uh, because he, he not only was so talented, but he also seemed to know his subject matter. He seemed to know who he was, what he wanted out of life. Here, 10 years later, I still wasn't sure. Um, and um, the, the conventional wisdom was um, that he was, going to be, he was going to turn out to be the writer. If somebody was going to make it, it was going to be this really, really talented kid. I, on the other hand, I think everybody knew that I was probably going to be a teacher with maybe a writing habit. Um, uh, but as it turned out, um, um, life being what it is and throwing not all fastballs, but sometimes curves, it turned out that this, that, that, that this other, other writer became exactly what I was supposed to be. He became, he became the college professor and he was, um, he was in poetry, um, and, uh, finally ended up publishing that rock and roll novel. But anyway, one day, one day he wakes up and gets the the New York gets the um, uh, Arizona alumni University of Arizona alumni magazine out and discovers that this kid who was supposed to be the professor supposed to be the teacher uh, just won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction uh, and 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 he, and he, he called have me discovered up. it like three three months late if yeah. he was depending on the Arizona <laughs> yeah. alumni yeah magazine. I know I know yeah he he missed the memo I, there, there was an earlier memo but. But and and he called me up one night, um, clearly uh, distraught um, over the fact that I had stolen his destiny, and um, uh, and 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 his story, the fact that I had been in his head for so long was was um, uh, was was really was really striking, and it made me think of all those points along the way when I was trying desperately to be a writer and things were not working out. And thinking about that last piece of the puzzle, because I had learned all the technical things, you know, Ilma, what, with what you do, it's like learning to use learning to use the tools in your in your kitchen. I knew how to use the tools, but I didn't have a voice, and I didn't know where to go looking for one until um, 
one day reading Steinbeck of all things, um, I suddenly uh, suddenly one of the one of Steinbeck's books. I was listening to a voice that was very much like my own father's. This was in Cannery Row. This is in Cannery right. Row. Yep. Yeah, uh, and I and I I realized that instead of looking for a voice, instead of looking for J.D. Salinger's voice, or Raymond Chandler's voice, or any of the or Mark Twain's voice, um, that my father's voice would serve me much better, uh, and that's and that was the. That was the final piece of the puzzle, and, and what I tell what I tell students when I still have a chance to talk with students is that that the technical stuff almost anybody can learn, and you can learn it, and it's like it's like when you download a program onto your onto your onto your iPad or your or your phone, and you see the little bar that runs across the top, and it goes. Rather rapidly, 15%, 37%, 68%, 79%. And it gets up to about 95%. And then sometimes the little wheel comes up and it just buffers. <laughs> and then you sit there and you wait for it and you think, do I give up? You know, should I shut it down, try something else, try something new? And for me, that's what that last piece was, was just a voice. And I buffered for like a year and a half, not recognizing, not really knowing what it was that I didn't have. Well, and I'm guessing the same is true in your profession, right? There's the technical skills, but you are, you know, one of, you're distinguished from lots of other chefs and lots of other pastry chefs, to be more particular, by a certain, you know, signature that your food has. Talk about that a little bit. And, and also talk, Ilma, about, I'd love to know, I, I think of Rick's writing as a reflection of at least part of who Rick, Rick is or an expression of it. Your restaurants, I've only been to Piccolo, Rick has been to Cheval. Um, how do they represent you? How do they express who you are? I think it's um, the team. Like I feel, I know it sounds silly, but like cooking, I think as long as you have like the technique behind, you can pretty much cook a lot of different types of cuisines. Um, and then as long as you put your heart and love into it, that's what makes it special. For me, I feel that it's a team and the feel when you go to each of our places. It's, uh, I believe that we have a team. I believe that everything is done together. And I believe that I'm just as good as the weakest member in the whole restaurant. So I try to, I do my best to treat everyone equally, including myself. And I hold everyone to high standards, including myself, which is really hard because I judge myself a lot. Like right now, I'm like, oh my God, I should be at work prepping. <laughs> I have people getting there at nine in the morning. Um, and I do that constantly. And being a mom makes it really hard. You've got a five-year-old daughter? Yeah, yeah. five-year-old. Wow. But it's it's really hard because, like, I I promise myself that every five years I will reinvent myself and, like, reassess where I am and where I want to go. And now listen to you talking about your boys. Now I'm in that process. I'm like, okay, this is what I do and this is how I cook, and I'm proud of what we have accomplished. But in their hands, like, okay, where am I going? Like, it has been five years since we opened Piccolo. And now I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, where am I going? Figure out. It's interesting, you know, what you're describing about your your role um, in in the kitchen, um, and as a as a restaurant owner, makes it seem a, a little bit more to me like screenwriting than novel writing. Because novel writing, I have no I have no team. <laughs> it's Team Rick, and that's and, and and if Rick's having a bad day, the team is having is is having a bad day. <laughs> screenwriting is is much more like what you're describing. It really is. It really is a team and and if you're a writer um on a on a movie or a TV show, you really have to understand that ultimately uh it is going to be turned over to other people and it is a and and the act it's not going to be any it's not going to be much better than the actors that are hired to play these parts and it's certainly not going to be much better than the director. So really so so really uh it it is finding people all determined to make the same movie, all determined to make to to have the same outcome. It doesn't take much to throw that off, I would imagine, in the no, in, a, in a kitchen. Not at all. Like we, uh, I mean, it's extremely fortunate to be nominated for James Beer twice, which hasn't happened. I mean, we have a twenty-four seat restaurant. Like our, the amount of people that were able to rotate is not as much to make you be out there. So somehow I got really lucky to have it back to back, which is awesome. But also, like I know that eighty percent of that nomination or word it's to our team because if i get a call for temple right now my daughter is in camp and if i get a call from camp i 
literally stop everything I'm making. And I'm like, okay, I'll see you guys later. Bye. And I leave. And they know since day one, the first thing I said to them is like, we're a family. And my family comes first, regardless. If I get a call, like I leave. But in the same thing, like if you get a call, like you have to leave too. And I understand that. So we try to, I, I tried to be really grateful to them. Because as you said, like, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how many hours I've been working. It doesn't matter the ingredients, where I get them from. If I forge them myself, if I don't have a good team that presents it to the guests, if I don't have a good team that I should play them up, it don't, it, if I don't have that support system, you couldn't care less about what is on your plate. I need right. everyone to be in the same place. And you, and you want dinner to be as good as it was for us last night, whether you're there or not. Everyone, yeah. Right? Thomas yeah. Thomas Keller at the French Laundry was once asked, you know, who cooks when you're not there? And he said, the same people that cook when I am there. Right? That's not what he does anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. but you know what's funny? It's And I'm seeing it more now, and I think it took me forever to see it. I don't know why. But people assume if I'm not at the restaurant, they couldn't go or they shouldn't go because I'm not there. But in reality... It's I spend 60% of my time doing paperwork. So I'm physically at the restaurant, but while you're eating, I'm actually doing payroll and doing a schedule and doing ordering and making sure that we don't overdo something. Like, I do mostly the paperwork and, like, check the whole place. But oh, the people that cook are the people that are behind the stove every single day for 12, 14 hours, 15 hours a day. And what are you hoping that your guests and your customers kind of take away like our family was really charmed by the intimacy of piccolo and by the knowledge of our server we had a woman named katie who knew the i think the cow in scotland where the cheese came from and seemed to you know (laughs) the cow must be very tired but because he's doing a lot of work but um what are you what are you hoping your guests come away with i want them to feel like they're coming home because like the way i see it's like you're leaving your own home to come to mine so by default, I should know your allergies. I should know what you like. And I should be there being grateful to you. It's nothing that bothers me most that when I go to a restaurant and they treat me like they're entitled. Once, you shouldn't be entitled because I'm paying for you um, and for you to have a, a, a living. Um, and I want people to treat me with respect. So by default, like, I expect everyone at the restaurant to treat our guests by respect. And make them, seriously, make them feel like home. Like our cooking... I can show you 10 different techniques in one play, but we're not doing that because you're not coming to my home to see that I'm able to use 10 different spoons and a knife. You're not coming for that. You're coming for a really good meal for someone that treats you nice. That's what you're coming for. I was, I was going to ask you, I have a director friend who, who says, and he uses exactly the same language that you do, Ilma. Um, he said that he, he grew up in Texas, and when he was old enough, he went, immediately to New York, as he said to, to, uh, he told me just, just the other day, he said, uh, he just, I said, I want to get as far away as I could, um, from, from my, from my family and Texas and still be speaking English. Um, but, but, but he said that every movie, he realizes that every movie he makes is, is almost always number one about family. But one of the things that he's trying to do in making the movie is to recreate a family and recreate home the home that he left so in some way the, what you're what you're going out into the world to get away from is is ultimately ironically what you return to and as i listen to you talk about your restaurant those are the those are some of the key words that that turn up family home uh so that's that's just it's 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 interesting that you see it that way it's the same like uh my mom said that the advice that you give someone is actually the advice that you need for yourself yeah which is true, yeah. and I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're calling to mind a very old novel for me, Rick, called The Odyssey. Yeah, right. Which yeah. is yeah. kind of that story as well. It is. It's one of the first of that of that that very story. Isn't um, it? Yeah. Let's talk about um, social conscience a little bit because you both bring it to your work in different ways, Rick. I think there's probably more of a burden on you as a a writer whose job is to project a voice, um, and I've had a chance to see you do it through your work with Shara Strength, but I know you've done it in lots of other ways as well. One of the things that um, I've read you saying is the, uh, uh, talking about the, the responsibility you feel to entertain but to instruct by bearing witness. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that, and how do you see it fitting with your work? Well, um, uh, it's impossible to ask, to answer that, to answer that question in, in these difficult, um, challenging 
sometimes um, horrifying times that we're living through uh, right now. And and the and the um, I had a, a conversation with um, uh, Luis Alberto Uria uh, at my daughter's bookstore um, just a couple of weeks ago. So about, is the print bookstore here in Portland? Print bookstore here in Portland. Um, and I asked him that question. I said, "Do you feel do you feel more of a more social responsibility?" And this is um, um, uh, Luis is from Tijuana, and he has family on both sides of the border. And to be living through these times right now is especially uh, is especially difficult for him. And I and I and I asked him, "Do you feel do you feel that that you know, as a writer uh, in times like these, do you have?" More of a, more social responsibility, the same amount, less. What's how do you feel um, a, a, a about this? And his his response was was um, I thought interesting in a lot of ways. He said, number one, you always have that responsibility, regardless of whether you're living in good times or bad. You always have that responsibility in good times because if if you're not if you if you don't help to keep those good times good. Um, you you will be held accountable and he said it's when you know when the fascists come they always come for the poets first <laughs> they come for the they come for the poets they come for the poets the journalists the writers because we have that voice mm-hmm. uh we have that uh, we're not just thinking for ourselves we're thinking and giving voice to um other people and in that but he also said that in that in that sense um is that that if you testify, um, if you speak the truth insofar as you know it, even writing that isn't doesn't seem particularly political turns out to be political. If if you're if you're if you're saying what you believe to be true. No, because like if someone, even if you don't want to go into a political road, if someone reads it and that's my state of mind, I'm going to assume or I'm going to think that you're speaking to myself, and I'm yeah. like, oh my god, you're right. Because at the end of the day, like when you write, it's up to each one to to understand them yeah. the way that they that they think. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole thing about storytelling um, is um, it's about empathy. It's it's pretending that I'm I'm not me for the for the next for for, for however long you're reading this. Uh, I'm not me. I'm some I'm somebody else living in somebody else's some living somebody else's life in somebody else's shoes. And that um, that is an act of of um, not just imagination, but moral imagination. To to um, um, I was asked recently to write something about um, because Empire Falls dealt with a school shooting. I was asked by the New York Times Book Review to write a piece about what it would uh, what it would be like to write a book like Empire Falls now, so long after. I mean, so school shootings have become have become commonplace, um, and um, and I ended up talking about exactly that. Um, if 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 you're a storyteller, there's there's some point at which you ask yourself, what would it be like to be for instance, the parent of a child killed in Parkland. If you can't, if you can't make that leap, you yourself as a writer, if you can't make that leap, if you can't imagine what if it was my kid, what would the rest of my life be like? If you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to make that leap and go where your heart and your head take you, you're not really doing your job as a writer, which is not to say that every book has to be overtly and profoundly political, but the act in itself of pretending that you are not you, but somebody else, and saying to yourself, what does it feel like? What would it feel like? That's what writers That's and, what writers And can do. I help somebody else understand? And exactly, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's powerful. It's the same, like, uh, my mom said that the advice that you give someone is actually the advice that you need for yourself, which is true, and I don't like it. Well, it's it's... It is. I mean, it's 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 hard, but it's also. Um, um, but if you can manage to to get it right, or even partly right, um, I, I I write books for the same um, reason that I think we all read them because it it gets. I get to live more than one life, and I've had readers tell me, you know, well, that's that's why I read too, because in fact. W- w- we're all we're all dissatisfied by how, in some ways, how short. Life is, and that you only get 
you only get one. <laughs> we, we, let's face it, we all want more. We all want more than one. And and writing, and I think reading, allows you to step out of yourself. And it's a it's a profoundly moral act, I think, to step out of yourself and say, all right, I'm going to pretend along with you. I'm going to pretend that I am not me. I'm going to pretend for the for the amount of time that I'm reading this book that I'm somebody else. And um, if that person suffers, then I will suffer. Then I will suffer too. Emma, we were talking when you first walked in um, before we got into the studio about some of the things you're involved in because I know you get asked to be part of community and and express your social conscience in many ways. One of them was an organization called Full Plates, Full Potential, which does anti-hunger work here. Talk a little bit about how the kind of the decision making you make in terms of what you get involved in. How local does it need to be? How directly do you need to see the impact for it to feel like something that it makes sense for you to not only leverage your own skills, but your teams? Um, honestly, I the first thing is like, I'm extremely, obviously I'm biased, but um, I describe it as like selfish. I have a little one and I believe that it's my job and our generation job, and by default our team, to make sure that the new generation is set. So we have to work with hospitals. Anything has to be with like the health. Hospitals, food, anything has to be for kids. Anything. I don't care what we have to do, but we have to do it. I think um, I think the generation that we're hiring now, like the younger ones that they don't want to work hard or long days or complain a ton, that was also no. Like you know how everyone complains about like this generation, and I think like because they didn't have a guide. So instead of complaining about the generation that we're you know raising, in case my daughter, like I need to do something to change that. So that way, like later on. 15, 20 years later, people are not going to complain about my kid. Uh, so we work for anything that has to be with kids. And the other thing that I do is like, okay, now I, the same thing you were saying. My daughter is healthy. My husband is healthy. My family, even though they're in Venezuela, they're healthy and they're fine and are okay. The more blessings I have in my life, the more we have to give. So whether, like every time something good happens to us, we have to give something out. And sometimes my husband laughs because it's like, oh, my God, dude, how many things? No, because, like, for me, it's like, okay, we had a really good review. Okay, what are we going to give back? And it has to be, like, monetary. It's, it has to be your time, your time and effort, and you have to care. Whatever you do, you have to care. So we work with Full Place Potential. We do a dinner for Barbara Bush Children's Hospital, which all the money goes to them. Uh, I was just doing a dinner at a farm this weekend uh, to get more funds to the farm because they lost a greenhouse and they're the only farm in New, in New England that actually raised this purebred uh, duck and goose. What else we work with? We work with Martian Times. So yeah, like the more local it is, the better it is for me just because like I would love to see a change. But as long as we're working and everyone involved is working to the same goal, we're down to do anything. Like we did uh, Meals on Wheels and it was fantastic. We did it in Delaware and I know that it's like super far away from Maine and it has nothing to do with Maine. But it was great to see all these people there for the same cause. You know, Rick, I remember one thing that you did for us very, very on. You've traveled with us. You've been part of our Bearing Witness experiences. But you also uh, wrote a wonderful piece about uh, it was either your mom or your grandmom talking about how um, food kept body and soul together. I don't know if you remember that, but it was this fabulous piece you wrote about uh, just the central role that food plays and just in just kind of keeping you who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the reason that, um, uh, you, you were saying earlier that, that you, you were saying that we could have, we could have all gone, uh, to Ilma's restaurant last night, but actually I was cooking last night. Um, and, um, uh, one of, one of my blessings right now is that my, my, both of my daughters who are in their thirties, uh, both live in the Portland area. And it means that we can get, we can get together for Sunday dinner, probably three out of four weeks and any, and any given month, despite, you know, the traveling that I'm doing and all of that, and I'm still, and, and for, and for me, it's, it's cooking for my crew <laughs> is, uh, is wonderful on so many levels. For one thing, I live so much of my life in my head, um, that chopping something at the end of the day is really good. <laughs> I, I, you know, slicing and dicing is, is wonderful, but there's also something wonderful uh about feeding people that you love and it's i i i don't know how um how to describe it exactly but i know it's i know it's part of 
uh, I know it's part of who I am. And if I, if I'm too, if I, if I've gone too long without being able to do that, without having, without having my loved ones around and putting food on the table. And I think it does go back to, uh, to my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, because she was, um, she was a master, uh, boy, nobody ever got more out of a, out of a quarter of a pound of bacon, uh, than, than my, than my grandmother, uh, than my grandmother did. But my grandfather was a glove cutter and he would get laid off. Um, it, it's, 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 it's funny because you, th- you think of gloves as, as something that is a winter, something you wear in the winter, but it's the time of year that glove cutters are laid off because of course you're making gloves in the summer for people to wear in the winter. As soon as, soon as the color, yeah, as, as soon as the, as soon as the weather turns cold, everybody gets laid off in the glove business. And that used to happen with regularity when I was growing up and, and with my grandmother, it was always a matter of stocking that, stocking that, that lower pantry, that lower cupboard with as many, with as many canned goods as you could, because by the end of the winter, that's what you would be. That's what you would be living on. And she was such a master at that, of keeping people fed. And and so for me, that my association of making sure that your loved ones um, are taken care of through food, just keep just keeping them functional um, uh, during cold weather, during bad weather, is just. Yeah. I know it's part of my DNA. I think. And I think you'll find Ilma that when your five year old is in their thirties, I have a son in his thirties as well. Uh, he has his own family. He's cooking for them and taking care of them. The minute he walks in the door, I'm saying, what can I make you, Zach? Yeah. Right? That's <laughs> like, I still have that insight. I still want yeah. to do that, yeah. right? Just as you were yeah. talking about. The right. thing is like cook, like cooking and feeding people is so intimate. And for your family, in the case, is like you know what they like yeah. and you're making their favorite food because yeah. you know you want them to remember that. Like it's the same thing like and now and whatever. I laugh at my brother, but we grew up obviously with my grandma. And my grandma will cook our favorite meal every birthday. So, yeah, we didn't have, like, a lot growing up, but we had just what we needed, which was perfect. And um, I actually am really lucky because I don't have any bad memories growing up. But my grandma, on our birthday, she will cook our favorite meal. And now when she cooks my favorite meal, it's not done all the way because my grandma is 80. uh, But still, it's the best thing ever. And we laugh because, like, it's crunchy because it's undercooked. But it's fantastic, and the blast, like, her smile, and she waits until you try it. And yes. yeah, after yeah. the first time, it's like, what do you yeah. think? And you're like, it's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> My grandmother used to make strawberry shortcake, and she did it well into her, well into her 80s and, and, of course, needed, needed the dough herself. And she would, she would do it when I came home uh, in, in the summer to work road construction. Uh, she would make it for me in the summer. Uh, and by the time she was in her 80s, her arthritis was so bad that her fingers would go in, like, five different directions. And yet, you know, despite the fact that it caused her, I mean, enormous discomfort. No, discomfort's the wrong word, pain. Uh, but that was, I mean, she was going to do it. And there was no, there was no telling her not to do it. You know, even, even when you saw what it was doing to her, yep. she, was, she was going to do it. Rick, I, I want to go back to something you said just a few moments ago. You were talking about this kind of frightening time that we're living in yeah. politically. Um, and I'm... Um, Curious, do you, do you ever have moments, uh, and I'm asking this because I do, where you, you have moments of doubt, you think, you know, maybe I should just stop what I'm doing and go volunteer for the ACLU for six months or the next yeah. election, or am I fiddling while Rome burns? How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, and, and I guess I come back to, at the end of the day, obviously I say, no, actually what I'm doing at Share Strength is really important and is a yeah. form of, yeah. of social change, and so I, I stick with it and I I'm guessing that you've reached Billy, the same I, conclusion. I, but... I, I do the same thing, and for the same reason, um, I, yeah, there are times, uh, you know, there, there have been times in the last month where I said, Barbara and I have just looked at each other and said, why are we not down on the border? What are we doing? What are we doing here? What are we doing here in Maine? Why are we not down on the border? And, and um, there, it's not that that instinct is wrong. It's a, it's a moral instinct. The, the problem is, what would we be doing if we were on the border? Whatever it is, we wouldn't be nearly as good at it. As, so, so I take the opportunity when I can to make my voice heard on political issues, whether in the form of essays or, or, or you know, writing something for the New York Times. What I have to say about guns in America is going to be so much more valuable for that to come out in the New York Times than it is for me to stand somewhere at a rally which is not to say that there's anything wrong with standing somewhere on a, uh, on a rally, but my sense is that my time is better spent 
doing doing something that I'm at least good at. Do you ever get worried about using your voice to harm yourself in a way? I, let me put it this way. I'm very careful about the uses that I put my voice to because um, I'm as fallible or probably more fallible than the next guy, especially when the next guy I'm sitting, when the guy I'm sitting next to is Billy. <laughs> so I, I'm careful, I'm careful about, uh, about um, the uses that I put my voice to. And I'm also very careful of timing. I'm not on social media for a very good reason. Uh, and that is that I don't always have great impulse control. And the last thing that I should be doing at any given moment is responding impulsively to something that has set me off because we're all being set off, you know, so much more every day. And the impulse to hit send or to or to or to or to do something on social media that you are later going to think to yourself, no, that was just pure rage. I wasn't even thinking when I did that. So I'm very I'm very um, cautious about using my voice, and I'm particularly cautious about timing. And I'm, and I'm glad that writing requires you to go slow um, because I don't... Shooting from the hip, I mean, it's, it's just... I've got, I've got a friend who's a communications expert in Washington, and his advice, which I find to be true in the realm that we're talking about, but also in marriage and in life, is if it feels good to say it, don't say it. <laughs> which is don't pretty good it. advice. I, I've stopped and thought about that many times. Yeah. No, it's the same thing. Like, we have the same issue at the restaurant. I was talking a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to our sous chef, and he's like, oh, my God, we work. We want to so much, but we work so much. So, or either you're good at your job because you have to, our job requires to be at the restaurant at least bare minimum 12 hours a day. And let's say you just sleep five hours or less, which we all do. That just gives you like, sometimes it depends, like maybe five or seven hours extra, which is really not extra because that means like from one in the morning to like five in the morning. And we're talking, it's like, okay, is it really meaningful what we're doing or we should be doing something else? And our plan was like, okay, what if we just like close the restaurant and go down to a border and try, try to feed these kids, try to feed these people that are actually fighting for them. Like, what if we do that? But then I just thought back and be like, hey, how are we going to get there? How are we going to find the funds to actually do it? I'm able to do it for like one day, maybe two days. If I really push it, maybe three days without tapping into my own child's support, which is huge. Um, and then like, okay, we need all the... We need the contacts to get down there. We need all these things. Otherwise, we're just going to be super dumb just standing there. So it's really hard because I find through the things that we do at the restaurant, I find people that want to help. They just don't know how. Which, which may be why we're, we are sometimes so much better at doing things locally. I think that we listen to each other better locally. We know each other better locally. And it's not like we don't have local problems. We don't, you, don't, you don't have to go all the way to Texas to find, to, to find problems. And if you're here and you're sleeping in your own bed at night um, and you're dealing with your own neighbors, there's a better chance that our competence, whatever it is that we're competent at, our competence will be able to um, to see us through better kind of locally where we know whether it's a left turn or a right turn. Right. You know, right. <laughs> right. Instead of. One, instead of instead of using your GPS, you can't get anywhere without your GPS. We don't need the GPS here in Portland and and we know where things are. And, and we and to the extent that we are competent, we can use that competence, I think, a little bit better. One of the things I want to I've got a couple of things I want to ask you guys as we wrap up our hours going really fast here. But, you know, we this, this podcast is called Add Passion and Stir, and it's about people following their passion. So, uh, Rick, you've written beautifully about this. One of the things you've said is. Um, the uh, semi, you've talked about the semi-valid reasons that people marshal to justify allowing the true passion of their lives to leak away. Um, and, I, and I love that because it, it implies that it's happening without you even possibly noticing it before it's too late. But um, for those who would want to follow in either of your footsteps, those who are inspired by this conversation, you want to be a writer, you want to be a chef, you've got, you guys have both done this a hundred times. Uh, if you had to boil down to the essence, the advice that you would give them, what would it be? Well, certainly having a really, really thick skin 
Um, I think that whenever you try to do something, something difficult, something complex, something with a lot of moving parts, the willingness to be bad at it for a while before you're good. The longest essay in this, in, in this collection of, of, of essays, The Destiny Thief, is one called Getting Good. And, it's, and, it, and it shows, uh, or I, I, I'm, I'm hoping people who read that understand that, that getting good is absolutely necessary, but there's no shortcuts. And so you have to be willing, with, you have to be willing to live with, uh, with lack of success, with, with defeat, and also with self-doubt. Um, because in any kind of creative field, when you fail, and which you will, <laughs> when you fail, it all, it all comes back to you and to your character. Uh, it's not like a math test where you, got the sum, where you got the sum wrong at the end, or it's not like a chemistry test where you didn't study long enough the periodic table. When you fail, it doesn't seem like an issue of character. When you fail at something creative, whatever, however susceptible you are to self-doubt, it can be excruciating. So you just have to recognize those that those, it goes those forces, with the territory. That, it, that yeah. it just goes with the territory. And that you probably aren't suffering any more than anybody else who's ever tried to do this, but you're also not going to suffer any less. Our son um, here in Maine got a little laser sailboat delivered um, a few months ago, and uh, the guy who delivered it said, um, when you capsize, and it's not if, it's when. That's right. <laughs> and that, for me, that was very helpful to hear because, you know, yeah. you think you've capsized and you've, like, blown the whole thing. And it's actually, it's just part of the process. And Nate and, and, and Nate is, is, from various things you've told me, a budding philosopher himself. What was it? The story about the sandcastles? Have you told oh, that story? Oh, well, no, I don't think I have. But he, um, <laughs> so we're right on the beach at Goose Rocks Beach. And uh, uh, this was a couple years ago when he was probably probably seven or eight years old, and I see him down at the water's edge talking to um, an adult, uh, which makes me a little bit nervous, like, <laughs> what's going on here? And, and there's, a, there's a man about, you know, a little younger than me, because most dads are younger than me, talking to his kids, and uh, then I see him kind of look up the beach to, like, does Nate have a parent here? And so I walk down, and I introduce myself, and he says, boy, he says, your son's a really interesting kid. I said, why? And he said, well, I'm building a sandcastle here with my son, and your son walks over, and he says, just so you know, I've seen a lot of these, and they're never here in the morning, <laughs> which is, right? I was like, that's pretty wise for, for an eight-year-old. That's really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you remember that, because yeah. I'd just about forgotten it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your advice, Ilma, for those who uh, want to do what you're doing. So piggybacking what he was saying, it's like, yeah, you have to have thick skin, but also be really gentle with yourself. Because I think, or at least for me, uh, my worst critic. And sometimes I have to go back and be like, hey, I'm just a human. It's okay. Because like the rest of the people, they will criticize you or maybe they won't pick your thin or they won't enjoy my food. But at the end of the day, it's like if I get to go home happy, I know that I'm doing the right thing. And that's my biggest thing. It's like just do whatever you want to do as long as you get home and be happy. The first job that I ever had, it was working for my mom, which it doesn't count. And paying job has been always in the kitchen. I never done anything else besides the kitchen, so I'm pretty, pretty blessed, pretty lucky. Uh, I am so thrilled to have both of you here, Ilma Lopez from Piccolo and Cheval. Thank you so much for being with us. Our pleasure. Rick Russo, longtime friend, champion for Share Our Strength, and just incredible author. Thanks so much for being on Ad Passion and Stir. Ah, uh, thanks, Billy. Uh, this is Billy Shore. I want to say thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, also known as Woody, my sister, Debbie Shore, who's been the co-founder of Share Our Strength and very active on this podcast, and Kelly Griffin, who helps put them all together. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. <laughs>